Today's reading is going to be John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26 in your pew Bible. That's going to be page 898. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will, be, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, I do encourage you to go to that text that Mark just read for us in John 12. Um, open that up in your Bibles or your uh, phone or tablet or whatever you might have there. As a plug for, and and you know me, I love technology, but as a plug for Bible reading, I would encourage a physical copy, not that it's wrong to use anything else, okay? I'm not making any standard here, but just as for what I find benefit of it, I see context so much better. I can turn pages, I can see this, instead of this endless scroll. But that's me, okay? So I'm just, just putting that out there for you. If you find, ah, I'm having a hard time with the context, let's go old school and go paper copy, all right? And then you'll see the context there. That's, that's, that's me. All right, John 12 is where we're going to be at in this Palm Sunday. Uh, we've sang a lot of songs with the word Hosanna in it. Anyone know what Hosanna means? What is that? Yeah. Save us, okay? All right, often, you know, we'll do this, we'll, we'll sing a song, I'll say, hey, do we know what we're singing? Okay, just want to make sure that you all know what we're singing here. A lot of hosannas, what does that mean? It was just became a term uh, that during this time, it was just a, as a way of a- asking God to save, right? To, so save us, okay? So it was a, as a request for salvation, uh, that's, uh, that, that gives you some of the idea of what this, this is talking about there. So the text's been read for us, and so we're going to uh, uh, dive into this, and we're going to look at this for the next few minutes here. But 
Uh, before I do that, I want to just uh, pause and ask God's blessing as I, uh, I begin to talk about this text of Scripture, okay? Let's pray. Father, what a great day this is. It kicks off Holy Week. It kicks off uh, Passion Week, whatever term we want to use. But uh, in our calendars, as, as we've set this aside and, and we remember all the things that happened, and then and this day, many, many years ago, Jesus, you you rode into Jerusalem on donkey, and it, it was time. It was time, the time of all preparation, the time of history that was pointing forward to, to that moment had come. All the reasons for the incarnation of you coming as a baby, it, it, it had come. And so, Lord, as we look at this text of Scripture, Lord, I pray that I be able to communicate in a way that's helpful to these uh, friends who have gathered here, or either in person or online watching, Lord, I just pray, God, that, uh, that I'd be able to communicate in a way that's helpful. But most importantly, Lord, we want to glorify you and honor you, and we want to be faithful to this text. And so we need your Spirit to guide us in that. I need it. I need your Spirit's uh, uh, help, Lord. I need, Holy Spirit, I need you to empower me and, and, and help me to know what to say here and say it in a way that's, uh, that's helpful. And then for those who are listening, uh, we need the Spirit to, to keep us from distraction and to be able to focus in for the next few minutes here. So that's what we're asking for, and we're asking that you would be honored and glorified by our time together. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Maybe you've heard of the advice, uh, don't ever meet your heroes. All right, maybe you've heard that before. And the reason why they say that advice is because you're going to be disappointed because often this is in terms of like an athlete or an actor or a celebrity of some sort. Um, you can read of several stories of people meeting their favorite celebrity and uh, being disappointed in that person. Um, what they saw on stage or on the screen uh, did not match what they experienced in real life. And I had that experience once. When I was in seventh grade, uh, I was at a Detroit Tiger baseball game. And uh, I remember sitting in the bleachers. We always got the bleacher seats. They were five bucks, okay? Five buck bleacher seats in the, in the, at the Tiger Stadium there, at the old Tiger Stadium. And uh, for those of you who are baseball fans, you know what I'm talking about, the old Tiger Stadium there. And, um, and so we were, we were watching the game, or we were getting ready the game to, to start, and we were there early, and we were sitting down, and, and there was an open gate kind of down over here. And so being the, the curious person I was, I went down and said, hey, well, what's, what's in this gate here? And, and I looked into the gate there, and there was a player. There was a Detroit Tiger. I won't, I won't mention his name, all right, you know, because... This is going to be a little disparaging, but he was number 28 and played outfield in 1991 through 1993. <laughs> but so he, he, he was standing over there, okay, and I mean, probably the distance from me to the window there, and so, so not very far at all, and he's just standing there presumably waiting for somebody, okay? And so I walk over there, and so I mean, I'm, I'm going to get his autograph. And so I went up to him, I called him by name, I said, Mr., I called him Mr. in last name, I said, can I please have your autograph? And I held up a pen to him. He's six foot three, he was towering over me, holding it up to him, and he didn't even look at me. He just kept staring straight ahead. So I stood there kind of awkwardly for a second or two holding this pen, and then I, I, I determined at that point that he was waiting for someone, but it wasn't me, okay? <laughs> All right? And then I decided at that point, I don't know if I want this guy's autograph anymore. 
And so I just walked away, right? Now, let me tell you something. Every time I saw that guy on TV again, okay, I wasn't bitter, okay? I mean, I only threw two or three things at the TV set, okay? No, I'm teasing, okay? I wasn't really bitter or angry about it, but I saw him in a different light. I saw him in a different way. It didn't matter how well he played or not. I knew how he treated me, and I didn't like it, okay? And so the question comes here is how do people see Jesus? I think that's what this text is helpful in understanding this. And people see Jesus in different ways, right? And it's often based on experiences. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text here, and we're going to see how people see Jesus, and then we're going to see how Jesus wants us to see him. And so two main points this morning as we walk through this. And so if I was going to summarize this, I would just ask you this question, who is Jesus? I would ask you that, to you, who is Jesus? When you, when you hear his name, what comes to your mind? How do you know Jesus? Okay, You've gathered in a church today. Okay, When you came to a church service this morning, you probably had some inkling that you were going to hear about Jesus. In fact, I hope you came to this church expecting to hear about Jesus. Okay, But you go to church, you expect to hear about Jesus. right? Who is Jesus? But why? Why did you get up this morning? Why did you not sleep in this morning? And you know, some of you are like, well, because I have a thing called parents. That's why. <laughs> all right. All right. I know. I know. All right. And that's okay. And that's good. All right. Okay. But why? Why are you here? When it comes time for you, if you are one of those in the younger uh, uh, situation here where you came because someone brought you, when it comes time to make your own choices, are you going to choose to keep coming to hear about Jesus? Why? Who is Jesus to you? How you answer that question really determines everything. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first of all, how do people see Jesus? We've looked at the text here the next day. I could go into that. I was going to do that at the time. I won't spend a lot of time. But you know, there were some major events that just happened before this. Mary has anointed Jesus. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead. And now Lazarus, they're trying to kill Lazarus because of this. Okay, And then the threats against Jesus have increased exponentially because of what Jesus did for Lazarus, the raising from the dead. That's kind of the things that were happening in the days prior to this. The day before this was when Jesus, uh, his feet were washed by Mary. Okay, that's, that's really what's going on here. So it says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is Passover season, so there's a lot of people coming for this feast. There's a, the, 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 the amount of people in Jerusalem has swelled incredibly uh, uh, to hundreds of thousands of people during this time. So there's a lot of people crammed into the city here, okay? And so they're here. There's a group of people. They take out branches of palm trees. He's a date palm. And they went out to meet him. They're crying out, save us, or Hosanna, blesses is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even King of Israel, okay? And so we see here in verse 13 that there are some people that had come out because they had heard of what Jesus has done, right? Okay, so some people, when they see Jesus, when they think about Jesus, they say, hey, he's a faithful provider. He's someone that does stuff. He's someone who gets things accomplished here. And so 
as, as we look at this, we see that this was someone who, when they came out the waving the palm branches, and they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, this was someone who, these were people, they thought that Jesus, okay, he is going to save us. Now, for most of the people waving the palm branches there, they, when they said save us, most of those people, what they meant by that was save us from the Roman occupation, from the Roman oppression, or from the Roman rule that they were under. There were so many times, you remember, even some of Jesus' disciples says, okay, now are you going to save us? Now are you going to restore the Israel, uh, Israel to its glory? Now are you going to remove Rome? And so that's what was going through most people's mind when they were waving these palm branches, that they thought, okay, we want him to save Israel as a nation and restore it back to its glory and get rid of the Roman occupation here. So when they saw Jesus, they saw what he did to Lazarus, they saw all the other miracles that he had done, they said, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to restore Israel to its former glory. And so he was a faithful provider. He was someone who he could get jobs done. He could get what they absolutely needed in life accomplished. Jesus was the one to go to in times of dire need and, and circumstance. And so this is how they, 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 they viewed Jesus. Often people, they view Jesus the same way today. It's someone who is it's like, hey, you need something done, we go to Jesus, right? But the rest of the time we're kind of living, kind of detached from him. We're, we're, we're living in a way of kind of doing our own thing. And then when things start spiraling out of control a little bit, man, we go back to Jesus. And it, does he want us to come to him in those moments? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But my friends, that shouldn't be the only time where we're going to Jesus, Right? I mean, how we see Jesus, he's more than just that genie in the bottle that we rub the lamp and poof, three wishes, okay, and get something done. He's faithful to do those three wishes. No, that's not how it works. You see, Jesus is so much more than that. He is so much more than that. But some people, maybe us included at times, we see Jesus as simply, okay, he's the one that I go to, not the one that I orient my entire life towards. But he's the one that I go to when I need something. How else in this text do people see Jesus? Well, as in some ways, it's just kind of a novelty. In verse 18, it says, The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So now it was like, my man, he had done something else. And so, you know, let's go see. So we had some people that they said, hey, this is about a, a, a faithful a promise to Israel. Man, he's our guy. Other people was like, man, what is he going to do today? This is kind of curious. Just kind of curious, you know. Let's go see what he's going to do, right? You know, who's he going to heal? How is he going to? Man, I love it when Jesus just kind of ticks off those Pharisees. Man, it is so good to see. It's like you, there's some people they would just like I imagine figuratively. This is an illustration, right? Okay, I would imagine that if they could, they would just follow Jesus around with a tub of popcorn and just wait, <laughs> you know, just kind of wait. Yeah, you know, what is he going to do next? All right, yeah. You know, it's like oh man, these Pharisees are so terrible. Yeah, go get them, Jesus. Go get him. Yeah, this is good. You know, I imagine that that's how they view Jesus. It's like, hey, this is someone who, he stirs things up. He mixes things up. I like this guy. He's, 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 not, he's not like the normal guys that come around, you know. And Nazareth, coming from Nazareth? Man, can anything good come from Nazareth? Man, I can't believe this guy came from Nazareth. This is amazing. More popcorn, please, you know. More of a novelty, I wonder how many people today see Jesus in a very similar way. I was kind of curious. I just want to study him more of in an academic sense. I mean, in fact, when you, when you read 
uh, books about Jesus or whatever from, uh, you know, not necessarily from a Christian perspective, but, you know, everyone understands that there was a person who lived whose name was Jesus. I mean, you know, that's, that's something that, that everyone agrees on. This is not someone that was just made up. I mean, there was a person who lived whose name was Jesus, and people spend a lot of time studying and reading about him, even not from a Christian perspective, because there's a novelty about him. What made him different? In fact, some people, they would say, you know, okay, he clearly wasn't God because that just doesn't happen. But, you know, he was a good teacher. He was a really, really good teacher. And so they study his teaching methods. They study his discipleship methods and things like that. But they're actually missing something that's really important there, that if he really was truly a good teacher, right, then he had to be telling them the truth. Because good teachers don't lie, okay? And so if you have a teacher that's telling a lie about himself, then he's not a good teacher anymore. So you have to understand that. But some people, when they, when they, just, when they see Jesus, they see him more as just a, as a novelty or someone who, who is just, you know, kind of gets their curiosity going a little bit. But my friend, that's not enough. It's more, Jesus is so much better than just something to be curious about. He's more than just a hobby to have. More than just something to kind of dabble with here and there as you have time. As there's a, you know, some free moments here and there, then we, well, yeah, let's, let's, let's think about Jesus a little bit here. I don't know. He's so much more than that. How else? Well, there's some people that just saw him as a threat. We see in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him, right? Okay. And so the Pharisees, these are the people that saw Jesus as a threat, as a threat to all of what they stood for and all of what they were doing. And so there was a combative relationship that they had with Jesus. In fact, to the point of is that they're, they're, they're trying to kill the people who are following him, and then they're trying to suppress even the work that Jesus had done. Why do you think they wanted to kill Lazarus? What did, what did Jesus do for Lazarus? He raised him from the dead. If they can kill him real quickly here, they can say, well, okay, he didn't really raise him from the dead. He just kind of rebounded health-wise for a little bit, but look, he's dead now, okay? So Jesus really didn't do it. So they're trying to discredit Jesus in the whole process here. It was because he was a threat to them. I mean, when they saw Jesus, they didn't see someone who was going to restore Israel to glory. They didn't see him as someone that they were just curious about as a novelty. No, they saw him as a threat to their happiness and to what they wanted to accomplish. Again, the question we have to wrestle with is, do we ever put Jesus in that category? Do we ever put him in the category of where now he's actually moving us away from what we truly want to do in life? I mean, it's just... He has all these rules, which is a false premise, but, but you know, that's a common one. He has all these rules, and, and, and you know, I want to do this, and I want to live my life this way, and I want to experience things in life before I kind of commit to that. I remember going through those thoughts and things. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church all the time, and I remember thinking through, and I was kind of all in on it uh, as a young teenager, but man, there was times where I thought to myself, maybe I just should pump the brakes on this thing about Jesus and, and experience life and happiness and, and joy, and then I'll settle down. You know what changed my mind about that? There's a lot of factors. My grandfather. My grandfather. Because he had lived a lot, gone through, he was in the Second World War, I've shared that before you, with you before, and I looked up to him in a lot of ways, and I thought, this is a good guy. And man, in his adult years, he would just read the Bible, and he just wanted, when I knew him, 
he just wanted to know Jesus. And I remember, I vividly remember this. I've probably shared this with you before, sitting on the front porch, a little stoop there in front of his house on Buick Street there. And I remember sitting there, and I remember asking him and saying, Grandpa, you've read the Bible so much. Why? Why do you keep doing this? What's, what's so important about this? Don't you know it all by now? Okay? Because when I say that he read the Bible, I'm telling you, he read it through like seven, eight times a year. Okay? Cover to cover. I say, don't you know it all by now? And I remember asking him, I remember, remember his response to that question. He says, Jeremy, every time I open the scriptures, there's something new. And he says, it's Jesus. I just, we, I'm learning more about him every day. And I just remember thinking to myself as a, as, as a preteen, thinking, how can someone study over and over again and still be learning something new? I want to I chase this out. I want to I I chase this down. I want to tease this out a little bit. And that began a journey for me. And of course, my parents, right? They had set the stage. They had put that foundation in place, and they had given me similar advice. But sometimes, you all know this, right? You know, sometimes parents, you say something, it just takes another voice. It takes another voice. Well, for me, it was my grandfather. And then later on, it was a youth pastor, and then it was some teachers and things like that. But Jesus had become more than someone who was just going to threaten what I wanted to do with my life. He had to become someone who he became my life. Now, do I do this perfectly? Absolutely not. And this is why I'm preaching the sermon. Remember, you guys have heard me say this so many, so many times. I preach sermons that I need to hear, okay? All right? You know, and so I need to be reminded of this, that sometimes I can allow Jesus to go into this category of, hey, he's threatening what I want to do here. And when that moment comes, how do I respond? I wish I could say 100% always, oh man, Jesus is right back in the category where he belongs. Sometimes it's a process, but maybe someone here needs to recalibrate how you see Jesus. He's not just a novelty. He's not just someone that you run to when you need something. And he's for sure not a threat to your happiness no matter what. That goes back to the very first lie in the garden, right? That goes back where, did God really say this? See, God doesn't want you to do this because he knows that you will be like him. And, and, he's, and, and he doesn't want your happiness. Let me tell you, we fall for that all the time. Satan said to, to Adam and Eve, he said back there is that, yes, God is a threat to your happiness. And here today, we're finding the same thing that you hear this over and over again. Jesus is a threat to your happiness. My friends, please, please never go into that. That's not true. Okay, so he's a faithful provider. Some people saw it that way, or as a novelty, is a threat. Well, then we get, this, uh, we get these Greeks down here in verse 20 and 21. How do they see Jesus? Well, here's a, you've got to fill in the blank for the outline here. Here's how you fill in. <laughs> we don't know. We, we don't know. Look, look, look at the text again. Now, those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. And Galilee and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's it. We, we don't even know if they even saw Jesus. We don't know anything about them other than the fact that they were Greeks, okay? And most likely that meant that they were God-fearing, that they were maybe, and since they were there for the feast, they were trying to follow, you know, this in some way. You know, we can kind of piece some things together here, but honestly, we don't know anything about what motivated these people. 
We don't know that if, if they were someone who that they were because they were just curious, or we don't know if it was because that they truly believed in him and wanted to follow him. We simply don't know. But they came and they saw out and they, they sought out and they wanted to see Jesus. So we have no reason to ascribe wrong motives to him, but John's silent about why they wanted to see Jesus. And as I said, we don't even know if they did indeed see Jesus. So how do people see Jesus? Well, the reason why I included this last one here is because there's a whole lot of other reasons that you can go through in your own heart of how you see Jesus. And I think this ambiguity here in this text here just is a nod to that, that these people, they were interested in Jesus. So by, the virtue, by, by virtue of the fact that you are sitting here today tells me there's some type of interest level either in your own heart or it's trying to be cultivated in your heart or something that there's an interest in Jesus. But how you have that in your own soul, you need to wrestle with that, and I need to wrestle with that. Who is Jesus to you? Okay? Now, I told you there's two questions. That was the first one. What's the second question? The second question was how Jesus wants us to see him. This text is helpful here. Okay, look here in Jesus' response. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that is very instructive. Now, it's almost frustrating in some ways because they come to him and they say, hey, there's some people that want to see you. And it seems as if he ignores them. It seems as if there's no response there. Or if there was a response, John doesn't record it for us. The answer is given to us. But what Jesus does here is he uses the request of the Greeks to see him during this holy time, during this time where he's just entered in triumphantly, and he's basically, and this is the whole thing about the, the Palm Sunday entrance, is that he basically said, I'm here, it's now public. He says he uses their desire to see him as a way for him to show that he is one who is completing or is going to complete his mission very soon here. That's what he means when he says, the hour has come. Now, if, if, if for those of you, you, you you're thinking, right, how, how, where that phrase, you've heard that phrase before. Well, you've heard that phrase that Jesus has said, but he never said the hour has come. Before, what did he always say? He always says the hour has not yet come, right? Remember when Mary, uh, this is at the wedding of Cana, and his mother says, hey, they've run out of wine here. We need to do something. What did Jesus say? He says, my hour's not come repeatedly throughout his earthly ministry. So for three years, Jesus has said, my hour's not come yet. This is not time. This isn't time. But today, this day, he rides into the city on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy of Scripture, coming in there. And then we know from another account where he's weeping over Jerusalem in that same process. He's coming in knowing that the hour has arrived. And when the Greeks come, when people from outside of Israel, when the people of the world come and says, we want to see Jesus, Jesus uses that question, that request to say to his disciples, the hour's here. It's done. Now it's here. The mission that I came to do is complete. Now it's important because that mission means that he's there to die. When he says that the hour is here, that's in the present tense, by the way. And so what he means by that, he says the hour's here and it's here to stay. Okay? This is it. 
And his mission, as I just said, was to die. I mean, that's what he was waiting for. He was waiting for the moment to come where he would die. He's going to wrestle with that in verse 27 outside of our text for this morning here, but he's going to wrestle with that. And he says, but no, it's, you know, do, should I say my soul's trouble, save him from this hour? He says, but it's for this purpose I have come. I've come to die here. That's why he talks about the seed thing here. You say, well, what is he talking about here? He talks in verse 24. I mean, these people just want to meet him, and he starts going and talking about this grain of seed. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about that because he's talking about his death here. He's saying that there's no fruit that's going to come unless the seed falls down to the ground, basically dies, and then fruit comes from that. And so that's the same thing that he says here, is he says that, that his purpose of coming, verse 27, was that he is going to die. But when he dies, just like the seed, it's going to bear much fruit. So why is this important? Because his mission involves you. It involves me. He came to this earth and he lived a life of perfect obedience, a sinless life, a life fulfilling the law perfectly, and then so that he didn't have to die at all because the wages of sin is death. And so he didn't have to die, but he willingly gave up his life and he died. Why? For a ransom for many. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so there's this call, there's this universal call that if you believe in Christ Jesus, right, he has died for you. That's why he triumphantly rode into the city that day. He says, the hour is here. The hour has come where I am going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then, of course, we know one week from day we're going to celebrate that he rose from the dead. Amen. And he rose from the dead. And then, so that mission involves you. It involves you sitting right here, watching online, wherever you're at. This mission involves you. And all of your week and all of your struggles and all of the things and how that sometimes you put Jesus in the wrong category in your life. His mission, this hour has come for you. And so, beloved, just respond to him and follow him. Put him in his proper place. He deserves it. He's completed his mission. It's a wonderful thing. But the text goes on more than that. Well, let me, let me before I go on, I just wanted to remind you, if you're taking notes, write down John 17, 3 and 4. I don't have it on the screen. John 17, 3 and 4. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. I, Jesus says, have glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's what he says a few chapters later. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that um, uh, I have finished the work that you have sent me to do. I, I've underlined that verse in my Bible. I'll read that and I say, "Man, I, I pray, I pray that at the end of my life, I pray that I would be able to sincerely and honestly say that I have glorified God on the earth and I have accomplished the work that He gave me to do." I pray that. And the only way that's going to happen is if Jesus remains in the proper place in my life. How I see Jesus determines that. It determines whether or not that is accomplished here. 
And so not only is he seen, he wants to be seen as someone who's completed his missions, he says, okay, the hours come. But he says this, the hours come for the Son of Man. And so he wants to be known as the Son of Man. And you say, okay, now what about that? Now, I got to admit, admit in, in, I remember in Bible college when I was first kind of wrestling with some of these areas of theology and things like that, this term Son of Man always kind of tripped me up a little bit. It just didn't seem right. It just didn't seem right. We're talking about Jesus, and I want to ever know that he is God, right, okay? And so if, if we're talking and calling him the son of man, it kind of like, you know, you know undercut his, his divinity a little bit. Well, that just illustrated that I had no concept at all of what the son of man really was communicating here. So let me help, uh, help us out here when I remind us of this. I won't take a lot of time on a whole study on this. We could spend a lot of time studying it, but I will say this, is that the term Son of Man is actually a rare term. It's only used a few times in Scripture, uh, only like, I can only think of one, maybe two times outside of the Gospels uh, where the term is used, okay? In the term of a title, by the way, is how I mean that. Um, but even though it was rare in usage, it was Jesus' favorite term for himself. And the reason why is because it has, uh, I, I don't have time to unpack all this, but it, it really has a connection to humanity of how that he lived a life as a human so that he suffered with us and suffered in our place. And so that's why Hebrews says that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He was connected to humanity in the incarnation, right? Okay, there's also a connection in terms of Son of Man to suffering. And so when people heard this, they would be thinking that when Jesus is using this term, he'd be thinking, okay, he is someone, and as a human, Son of Man, he's experiencing life's difficulties here. So a connection to suffering. There's also a connection to salvation, though, is that he is the Son of Man in terms of that God has given him a purpose, right? The purpose to die and the purpose to bring salvation to to man. Hosanna, save us. But most importantly, this is the reason why I think that he uh, chose this term for himself often, is because there's no connection to nationalism. It, it, it was a generic term and stuff. It wasn't necessarily about a nation. And so all the political trappings and things like that, that Jesus had to carefully walk through those landmines, by using the term son of man, it wasn't a term used in Israel's uh, uh, lexicon about Yahweh, okay? But he was still connecting himself to that. So all that to say is it's important that he says this hour has come for the Son of Man. And in that one title, he is just communicating a lot of things there, that he is there to suffer, that he is there to suffer as a human, but there he is there to suffer as a human who is also God, and that he is not there just for one group of people, but for the sins of the world. That's what he's communicating there. It's a beautiful title. And so when he says the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's what he wants to be known as. He wants to be known as that he is a, a God for everybody, for you, for you. And there's one other one. As someone who's worth following. This is how Jesus wants to be known, I think, in this text. He says, whoever loses life, um, uh, whoever loves his life loses it. Okay? Present tense, by the way, there as well, means that whoever loves his life is in the process of losing and in the process of destroying his life. Okay, that's what that verse means. So if you love your life more than anything else, you're actually in the process of destroying it, according to Jesus. Okay, 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Now, this is not talking about depression. This is not someone who just has loathing and things like that. That's not what it's talking about. It's terms of value, okay? It's talking about priority here. It's a common way of expressing that in this time, okay? Okay, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, verse 26, he must follow me. For where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I say he's worth someone worth following here because look at the very end of 26. What Jesus is saying there, he's saying it is to your benefit to follow me. It is to your benefit to follow Jesus. Okay, it is your benefit. No matter what anyone else says, no matter what uh, uh, the world says, no matter what philosophy says, no matter anything else, I'm telling you, it is to your benefit to follow Jesus. And sometimes we 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 want to talk about you know well, we do things for the glory of God, and absolutely, absolutely, ultimately, that is why we do it. But God, but Jesus often does what He just does here, is He says, and by the way, not only does it glorify God, but it's to your benefit. This is why you do this. This is why he says, go to church. This is why he says, listen to your leaders. This is why he says, in all those accounts, he says, it's for your benefit. And so, my friends, on this Palm Sunday, if I can, if I can just remind you that Jesus is great, that Jesus is wonderful, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has completed His mission, and He's in the process of bringing us into Him. When He comes back, He's going to restore all things, and He's going to set all things right, and I just cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait for that day. He's worth following. I don't care if you've been in church for your entire life. We all need this reminder. We all need to be reminded that we got to recalibrate a following after Jesus Christ. And so I started with this question here. Who is Jesus? How you answer that question determines everything. And so I want you to think for a second. I want you to think who Jesus is to you. I want you to think about what words you would use to describe him. How would you describe Jesus? How would you describe him if someone says, you know, you, you say you, you follow Jesus. Why? What's so special about Jesus that you would orient your life, that you would go there on Sundays, that you would give money to the church, that you would orient your life around that? Why? Why is Jesus so special? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus to you? How you answer that question determines everything. In 1976, there was a... um, there was a, a pastor out in San Diego, California, um, and he preached a sermon that has kind of become famous. This man's name was S.M. Lockridge, and um, he, uh, uh, he's just got the coolest name in the world. His S.M. stands for Shadrach Meshach, by the way, okay? So um, he preached this message, and um, I'm going to play here in a second a a three-and-a-half-minute clip of this. Now, this this section was actually reduced down to from a a six-and-a-half-minute section of the sermon. I believe the sermon's title was Amen, Um, but uh, there's a section of it. He ends his sermon by by describing Jesus for six-and-a-half minutes. It's been reduced in this video that I'm going to show 
to three and a half minutes. Maybe some of you have seen this. I don't know. But I want you to think about who Jesus is. You're going to see words on the screen. You're going to hear this pastor's voice telling and describing who Jesus was. And again, this is from 1976. And so there'll be a reference or two that if you know U.S. history, you'll, you'll make an immediate connection to uh, there. But um, uh, I'm going to play that for you now, and then we'll transition to our Lord's Supper. So, so who is Jesus? You know, it's, it's humorous when he says there, I wish I could describe him to you. Um, I know that feeling, though. Who's Jesus? I wish, um, in moments like this, I, I feel um, embarrassed, but I feel, um, I feel the, the limits of my vocabulary. So, um, I left my Bible down there, I will just refer you to the book and say, you know, get to know him, get to know him. How, how, who Jesus is will determine everything about your life, okay? Okay. 